Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. The Gospel of John, and we're spending a little extra time doing some introductory stuff, partly because we want to be able to talk about what, the, what was going on in John's day that would have prompted him to write in the certain way that he did. Certainly the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to do this, and we certainly believe in the idea of inspiration, that all of God's Word is uh, inspired. But at the same time, we know that the Gospel writers writing to different, different constituencies with different things going on, they would sort of tailor the, tailor the stories or tailor the narrative in order to reach people in a certain way. And so one of the things we've talked about is how John was in particularly interested in, in linking or bridging the gospel to not just to simply Gentile uh, people, but more specifically to Greek people. And we talked uh, uh, pretty much uh, last week in terms of some of the differences between the Jewish mindset and the way the Jewish uh, thought was regarding uh, God and people and the relationship of the two and how different that was at that time uh, between uh, how Jews viewed things or Hebrews uh, viewed things and the way Greeks often did. So one of the things that we talked a lot about was in in the Greek mind, there was a difference and, and a tension between that which was of the spirit or the mind and that which was of, of matter or the material world. So that what Greeks believed was, was that God and what they called God was, was pure and was essentially good. So anything having to do with the spirit or the mind was good and was therefore to be pursued. Anything that was of matter, uh, anything that was of uh, material, including people, was essentially evil. And so that was the distinction that was drawn between not just simply good and evil, but also between, between God and man. So what John was attempting to do was, was uh, sort of asking the question, how do you bridge the gospel which is written primarily from a Judeo-Christian perspective with all of the stories in the Old Testament and all of that that would have totally spoken to a Jewish culture, how do you take that same gospel of salvation and have it make sense to people who don't think like that? In fact, people who would look at all those stories and perhaps say about those stories, well, that was fine for them, but that doesn't appeal to us. Or maybe that all those stories are nothing but uh, mythologies that are intended to make a point, kind of like we talk about parables making a, a point, but that that was all it was. It was just a bunch of fables, just a bunch of, uh, of, of uh, stories intended to make a point, but they weren't really true and they weren't really real. How do you do that? And so are you like waving or asking, oh, you want, oh, we got some places over here to sit. Yeah. And they're actually red chairs, so feel like uh, we, we, want, we don't want our visitors to suffer. Uh, yeah, I want to sit in the back. You know that. <laughs> uh, good Lutherans. Yeah, it's excellent. Okay. All right. So, so, see, that's the question. And that's a question that we're asking today. See, that's the very same issue that we have today, is how do you take the gospel? How do you take something that all, many of us grew up with? I won't say all of us, but many of us grew up with the stories. Many of us grew up with the, the narratives. Many of us would say, oh, Palm Sunday, yeah, we know exactly what that is. Here's what happened, the palms and the children and the cloaks and all those kinds of things. But how do you reach people who have no idea what that is? And maybe to some degree, see it as irrelevant, how does the gospel reach those folks? And in what way, what role does the church play? And not just corporate or institutional, I'm talking about the body of Christ. In what role do we play? And so one of the thoughts is, is that we actually are a bridge. And the idea of the bridge is, uh, is, is not a new one, but it's, a, it's an intriguing idea that here you have, you have the world, you have people over here, you have the gospel over here. The gospel is, the, is preferred, at least from our perspective, But the question is, how do you get the gospel to people and whose job is it to do that? 
Now, one would think God could do a better job of that than we could. You ever, oh, who said that? Yeah. I mean, really, actually, if you look at it from a distribution perspective, wouldn't it be better if the one who was omniscient would do it more than us, that he would send the angels to do it, so to speak? But yet God in his wisdom does what? He says to us, we're the ones. And it kind of makes sense. We're the humans, human to human, right? But it sort of then puts the onus on us to be thinking about what is the best way to reach somebody when that person maybe is uh, uh, at least to one extreme could be hostile, maybe in some sense. And, and we would certainly argue that in society today, there is some hostility that's being expressed toward Christianity. So hostility on the one side, but maybe just simply indifference on the other, and maybe just a whole lot of confusion in between. So that's what, that's what our focus is in this study, as we not just simply taking a look at it from the perspective of, okay, what did John say and what does it mean? But actually that we can look at it from the perspective of, is there, is there a value that, that the gospel brings to us beyond salvation that enables us then to, in some sense, reach people who maybe don't know the gospel and in, in their lives could benefit from it. So does that make sense? Just say, do like this. Yes, that makes sense. Okay. All right. So we're going we're gonna to kind of keep, keep working through this. So we're kind of discussing a little bit more today about what was going on the Greek, in the Greek world. And uh, that's uh, the, the point there, point A, the rise of heresies was threatening people's confidence in, uh, in the gospel. So the first, the first thing that was going on, there were some different sects that were part of the sort of the believing community, if you will. And the first one that's represented there was there was a sect that followed John the Baptist, right? Now, when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was doing baptizing, correct? But there was a distinction between the baptism that he was doing and the baptisms that came later in terms of after Jesus had gone to heaven and the Holy Spirit came down and we have the, the whole thing with the, the formation of the early church. And so in the book of Acts chapter 19, we see St. Paul encountering some people who had been baptized by John, but they, they, they were not seen as believers, partly because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. What that means is John was the forerunner. John was the one who came before Jesus. And when he baptized people, it was a baptism towards something that was coming. Later, uh, when, the, when the early church was formed, then what happened was Paul and the other disciples were baptizing in terms of what had already come, and that was Jesus himself. So there was this idea of a baptism in, in, uh, in terms of faith and salvation, and there was baptism in terms of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we won't read through Acts 19, 1 to 7, but that's what that story is about. So again, there were people who were baptized in John's name, and they very much had uh, collected themselves around John. The second group that was a part of John's world were called the Judaizers. We talked a little bit about this last week. The Judaizers were believers uh, in Jesus, but their belief was, was that in order to be a true Christian, in order to be the real thing, you had to do what? You had to become a Jew first, right? So in order to be, and it kind of made sense from that logical perspective, because all of the followers of Jesus, and including Jesus himself, were what? Yeah, they were Jews first, and then they became Christians. So the idea from, from their perspective was, was that you have to be circumcised, you have to follow all the traditions, you had to follow all of the laws, and then you could be converted to, uh, to Christ. And that particular group was one that created some some heartburn, I think, for Paul in, uh, in terms of his ministry and the early apostles. The insistence on that you could only do things a certain way, and if you, if you departed from that or deviated from that, then you weren't, uh, you weren't true in your Christianity or true in your faith life. The third group is a group that was called Gnostics. And Gnostics, the word Gnostic comes from a Greek word meaning to know. Okay, gnosos is the, is, the, uh, is the word. And it comes out of a, a belief in terms of, again, what was very reflective of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Greek mind. So, so I'll kind of walk you through it here. All right. So Gnostics believed 
that a perfect God had to remove himself from anything having to do with the material world. Because again, everything up here is essentially good. Everything down here is essentially evil. And so the logic was, if God is perfect, then he would have nothing to do with and include the creation of the world. So Gnostics did not believe that God, as we understand God, created the world or the universe. Now, the Gnostics would say a creator God did it, but the creator God is not the God of Genesis 1 and 2. And so the quote there is from a man named Serenthus, who was actually a uh, kind of a guru in the world of the Gnostics. And here's what he said. The world was created not by God, but by a power separate from him and far distant from that power who is over the universe and is ignorant of the God who is over all. So the idea was, was that the God of the unseen world, which was pure and holy and perfect, sent some, let's, let's use the word subordinate gods. Let's use that word, okay, to try to make some sense of it. And the subordinate gods were, were, were separate enough from the perfect God in order to uh, have something to do with uh, matter, have something to do with mankind. Yes, ma'am. I have never understood how the Greek thinkers could reconcile the Greek pantheon with the misbehavior of all of their gods with this idea that God had to be perfect mm -hmm. and always good. That one I, just makes no sense to me absolutely either. Does anybody know, Bob, anything about, did you hear what she said? The pantheon with all of the misbehaviors of the gods or the, the, uh, the different uh, uh, deities, if you will, okay? Does that, did any of that make sense to you? They made their gods like superhumans. Okay. They weren't gods, they were just superhumans. Okay. And so they had all the foibles of humans. Yes, with some uh, superpowers that would go along with being deity. So maybe that was an attempt to, to be an intercessor, kind of a bridge, if you will, between deity and, and humanity? Well, that was their deity. Okay. That was their deity. Okay, very good. Very good. Thank goodness Bob is here today. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So some Gnostic, so here's where this belief would have gotten in the way of Christianity. And that's kind of where we're going with this to understand this. So Gnostic beliefs about Jesus was, is that since divinity could only exist in the unseen world, and Jesus came where? To the seen world, then therefore what? Jesus was not divine. They certainly would have bought into the idea that Jesus as a human would have existed. Obviously, he walked the earth while many of them were living. But the idea that Jesus could be divine and be human at the same time, that the, the Greek mind couldn't, could not deal with that. All right? If the Greek mind stayed in that Greek sort of thinking. So if Jesus was divine, okay, well, then he couldn't possibly be flesh and blood. Because if flesh and blood is evil and Jesus is not evil, well, then therefore Jesus could not be man any more than he could be God. Therefore, Jesus is not the God-man. He is not the Savior of the world. Now, think about it for a second. Does Jesus have to be God in order to be Savior of the world? Yes. Why? The answer is yes. Okay, we put everybody's relief here. Okay, but why? Why does Jesus have to be God in order to be Savior of the world? Sinless, yes. So when Jesus was born, who was his father? When he was conceived, who was his father? Holy Spirit. See, that's why, that's why he was not Joseph's, well, he was like stepdad, but it wasn't like the birth dad. Because Jesus had to be born into the world, sinless, right, without the sinful nature that everybody else has. So the only way that he could be perfect is to be born of the Virgin Mary and, and conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Tim. I know this is kind of more really deeper stuff here, uh -oh. but I remember uh, somewhere I heard in like a Bible study years ago that, I mean, Jesus' father was the Holy Spirit. Somewhere I remember hearing people talk about how our, like, our inherent sinful nature we inherit from our father. Is that accurate? Or have you ever heard something like that? You mean as opposed to our mother? Is that what you mean? 
Yeah, let's take a vote here this morning. And let's see what the group thinks. Yeah. Well, again, it's human. It's the humanness. But yeah, you could argue that. Okay. And so that's why uh, Jesus could be carried in the womb by Mary and her sinfulness did not affect him in that sense. Okay. Now, again, that would maybe be a bit controversial in Catholic circles because in Catholic circles, there is the belief that uh, Mary herself contributed to whether or not Jesus had a sinful nature or not. Okay. So that's, that's a difference between where Catholics come at this from uh, in terms of where Lutherans come at it from. Okay. All right. So yeah, great point. So again, see God, Jesus has to be divine. He has to be God in order to be the savior. Now, why does he have to be human? Why couldn't he just be God and that, that'd be enough? Yeah, because he has to live the life that we live. All right. Yeah. See, it's a both. And that's why when the Gnostics came at this from a Greek perspective, trying to make sense of it, it didn't make any sense to them. There, there wasn't any way they could connect the dots because from their perspective, if you're God, you're pure, but then you can't possibly join to the human. And if you're human, then you're essentially evil. So how in the world could you be the savior of the world? And so that's a, that's the, one of the aspects of this that John is trying to address. Then how do you reach people with the gospel whose orientation uh, from, uh, in terms of foundational way is like, is going to basically uh, separate these out instead of join them together. Okay. That's a boy, what a task. All right. Yeah. I mean, we see this today. If you just talk to Jehovah's witness. Oh yeah. In some religions. They point to this verse in verse 18. That's that correct. Says, no one has ever seen God. So they say, well, how can Jesus be God? No one's ever seen. God. There you go. There you go. They do not see Jesus as the mediator. They don't see him as the, as the bridge, if you will, in terms of God and man. So some modern day references, in addition to the Jehovah's Witnesses, that echo Gnostic influences, all right, is how many have ever heard of God being referred to as the higher power? Okay, higher power. Now, it's very common in 12-step circles to, to uh, hear uh, God being referred to that way. Do you know why they do that? So they don't hurt anybody who's non-Christian's feelings. That's correct. It's, and it's not just a feeling perspective, but I think the attempt here is to try to be as, as uh, non-offensive uh, in the sense of that it would keep people away. There are Christian 12-step groups that refer to God as God, Jesus to Jesus, that sort of thing. But in terms of a generic sort of attempt to reach as many people who are suffering with addictions, that's why it's used in a higher power way. But that you can see where that's, that's an influence of Gnosticism. The higher power, right, is, uh, is, is up here. Um, we talked a little bit uh, last week about some different religions that believe in a form of reincarnation. Certainly a Hindu would, would be a, a religion that would come to mind, but there are other nuances of that that we see in uh, mostly Eastern religions. What about immortality of the soul? Have you ever heard of immortality of the soul? Okay. Immortality of the soul sounds like something that ought to be Christian, right? It ought to be. If you define immortality as after you've lived on this earth, your soul goes to be with Jesus in heaven or not with Jesus in hell, so to speak, then there is an immortality in that sense. But what the Greeks believed about the immortality of the soul was that it had no beginning. There's no beginning, no ending. In other words, the soul has always existed. Souls have always existed in the, re in the residence, if you will, uh, with God. And so then what happens, the belief is, is that when somebody is born into the world, a little piece of soul comes down here and gets trapped in a body. And then uh, you live your life hoping that eventually, if you live it well enough, when you die, the, the, the matter goes into the ground. And what happens to the soul? The soul goes back up here to be with God in the unseen world and hopefully can stay there. Unless you really messed up your life, then, uh, then, then another thing is born. Uh, doesn't have to be human. Another creature is born and soul gets, uh, gets its chance to do over again. Okay. So I know we look at that and we just shake our heads and we go, how can anybody conclude that? But see, from the earliest point all the way up, we've been raised what? With Judeo-Christian. 
with all the stories, with all the mindset, with all the, the whole idea of Jesus as God, man, and all that kind of thing. And that was totally foreign to the Greek mind. Yeah. Jackie. Um, I don't know if any of y'all watch the cartoons your kids watch or Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo? You're going after Scooby-Doo? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. The way they depict that is like this big cauldron up in heaven mm -hmm. with these little worms that glow mm -hmm. and they're swirling around in the big cauldron and they get plucked out of the cauldron and put back to earth. So that's Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo? Holy cow. Wow. And they're more recent, but yeah. yeah. So okay. that always makes sense when you described it. I was always wondering why is there a cauldron of these glow in the dark worms? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. This was the movie, right? That's yeah. the movie, but oh, it's the also movie, in yeah. Disney movies like oh, yeah. I don't know. Any of y'all watch your kids' movies? What what about grandkids? Yeah, all of a sudden we're all going through all the DVDs that we have sh shelved off to our kids, right? Wow, that's something. That's interesting. But, you know, if you think about it from that perspective, what better way to influence someone and what better way to, to indoctrinate somebody in some of those different uh, teachings than to do it in the, uh, the medium of, uh, of cartoon or of, uh, of kid shows? Yeah. Okay, so this whole, like, idea of, like, the soul comes down, it gets chopped in the body, and then it goes back, does that kind of fall into that whole transgender thing if it's... You have a, like a female soul that's trapped in a man. Is that kind of this? I don't know. I don't know enough about that, the gender aspect of that. Okay. There, there could be, though. There could be. I know that, that some of the folks that espouse to more of an Eastern way of looking at things, which a lot of that comes out of here, is, um, is the idea that all of life has souls. So, so animals have souls and, and uh, catfish have souls. So did you hear about the catfish controversy? There's some, uh, there's some NHL team, a hockey team, where, you know, when, uh, when their team wins, they, they will throw things out on the ice. So like uh, Bruins and, and Dallas Stars and things like that. Well, there's apparently one of the hockey teams that they have this tradition that when their team wins, they throw dead catfish out on the, uh, out on the ice. Yeah. You know, I don't, well, I don't know. You know, it's just kind of what they do. And so PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals were very upset by that because they said all of, all of life, they didn't quite say all of life has souls, but there are some of the nuances of that in, in PETA is that all uh, are valued, right? All of life is valued and that catfish have feelings and they can feel their pain. And so w you shouldn't be doing that. Instead, you should be uh, taking these uh, stress balls and throwing stress balls out on the uh, out on the ice. And my thought was, my heavens, how many times did I go catfishing with my daughter? And, uh, you know, you catch a catfish and, you know, you pretty well have to eat it. But in order to eat it, you got to do violence to it. So anyway, it's just it, it's just a it, it's a different way of seeing things. And after the game is over, they have a big fish fry. I know. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. And yet they're on ice. I mean, how bad could that be? You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, that part doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, Brenda. Well, we don't need to think that, that fish have souls to realize that they have pain receptors and yes. receive pain. That part. And when we kill them, they should be done as humanely as possible. As humanely as possible, yes. And they're not throwing live catfish out on the ice. So that's one aspect of that, okay? But again, see, in some of the religions of the world, that is a different perspective than, uh, than we take. So, so another would be in terms of New Age references, to God as a primary energy source. Now, again, is it true that God is the primary energy source of the whole world? Yes, that's very true. All right. But if you're, if you're using that in terms of how I relate to God without the presence of the bridge, who is Jesus Christ, see, that's where the, that's where the difficulty comes in. And then finally, uh, modern day references is Jesus as a teacher, but not as a divine savior. Okay. And that's part, that's a big chunk of what distinguishes 
Christian belief and thought from the rest of the world is that where Christians are coming at this from is the perspective that, that Jesus is God and man. It's co-equal there, but he has to be both in order to be our savior. And the fact that we need a savior in the first place, the Gnostic mind would not have, would have said, you don't have to have a savior. It's just that you have to live your life in a, as pure a way as possible. And then that is what would gain you access. That is what would increase your likelihood that you get to stay with God. Okay. Does that kind of make sense? That part? Okay. Yeah. And Master Adi, with that, um, you mentioned like Jehovah's Witnesses earlier in the verse, no one has ever seen God. Do they believe that Jesus was just like a messenger? I'm not as versed on Jehovah's Witnesses than maybe some other folks are. So I don't know the ins and outs of it. I know that they, the, one of the beliefs is that Jesus is a son of God, but not the son of God. So there is some, some, some distinguishing there, but partly that's because the new world translation that they use uh, in terms of the, their Bible is, is not consistent with the Christian Bible. Okay. So I'm not as versed on that. Sandy, did you have some? They said, well, I grew up in uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You did grow up in Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. And uh, my grandmother was devout. And so as a little four-year-old, I was going up and ringing doorbells. You were? Yeah. Wow. I thought it was great, but of course when I learned different. Yeah. But there are there are things that um, they say about Jesus that he is only a man mm-hmm. and that he was a good man right. but not, not the savior. The yeah. Devil. Right. Yeah. So that's so, some of that distinction falls like it, like if you're if they're uh, talking to someone who would not know that it's important to believe that then it would be very convincing to think of Jesus only as as a human right that would make perfect sense uh, but that's why again part of part of our learning is to be able to see the see those distinctions and then see the the flaw in the thinking where it is at least from a biblical perspective okay so problems with narcissism and then we'll be ready to move on Number one, God is disinterested in mankind. Why? Why would God not care about mankind? Because he is good and he removes himself from that which is evil in terms of matter. All right. And because he can't touch matter, which is evil, then therefore he is not even disinterested. He's repelled by mankind. He has no love for mankind. So see, one of the things that we see in John's gospel is over the top descriptions of what God is, God is love. How many references we'll see where John is really going after that, this idea that, that you have your, your view of God, Greeks is very, uh, very uh, stern and very uh, severe. And here God presents himself in the scriptures as being someone who loves us. God does not seek closeness with man. Therefore man must seek closeness with God. And the way the Gnostics believed that was through secret knowledge, codes, different things, uh, different uh, words or new numbers or read between the lines when you read the Bible. Okay. Have any movies ever come out that, uh, that would have referenced that? Da Vinci Code kinds of movies. Yeah, the, uh, those kinds of things. And did, do you remember when those movies came out? I mean, they're pretty old now, but it really caused quite a stir, Right. People are very interested in the idea that if you, if you investigate the Bible at that deeper level, you're going to know some things that nobody else knows, right? And you might gain some secret knowledge that nobody else has, right? So that's where that comes from. And then finally, that Jesus is not the Savior of the world because God is really not interested in saving mankind. So... John now, in, and again, John's intent, one of his intents certainly is, to, is to, uh, to be that bridge or to offer the gospel as the bridge. So his use of stories in Jesus's ministry, teachings, and miracles directly address the Gnostic heresies. So the first, very first part of John that we're going to be talking about in a few minutes, where John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. All things were made through Him. That goes right after this idea that God, in fact, did not create 
the world that God wanted to have nothing to do with the world. The second one, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Again, we're going to see that theme repeat itself constantly through uh, the gospel of John. And then this one would have absolutely blown the Greek mind away. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There would have been double takes going left and right when, uh, when the Greeks would have heard this. So what is the purpose that John put together this gospel? He says it in John 20, uh, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you what? You may have life in his name. Who is the you? These are written so that you. So when, when you think about the word you, who comes to your mind? And that's what I want you to think about. Attach a name or six names to the word you. And it may not be you. Okay. Well, it might be you, it might be us, but who in your life and who in your mind is confused about Jesus. Who in your life and who in your mind maybe grew up with all the stories but has rejected them? Who in your life and your mind had never had any exposure to the stories? And so maybe in some sense is hungry for them or maybe is like, ah, oh, that's just a bunch of hogwash. See, as we work through this gospel, I want you to kind of keep in mind this purpose, that the purpose of this gospel is what? These are written so that you, whoever you is, right, may believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so that's just a little extra thought there in terms of, of what we're going to be doing with this. So some outreach applications to a post-Christian culture. Are you familiar with that phrase, post-Christian? Have you heard that before? Maybe you've heard postmodern and other phrases that are often used. Okay, post-Christian is just simply a, a way of saying that we no longer live in a culture where Christians are the majority of people in, at least in, in our U.S., okay? Um, let's see. Did you see the article that came out? I think it was last week about the fact that uh, atheism depending on how people define that, okay, there's, there's probably a pretty broad definition of how people use that, but that atheism has become now the majority, at least in the U.S. Okay, is that interesting? Yeah, Jimmy. You see that? Yeah. I thought that was quite striking. Now, again, they define atheism, which could be agnosticism, too. I think there's a lot of people who say, they don't say, I reject the, the idea of God, which would be atheism, but agnosticism is more of a, I reject a uh, God by a certain name, all right? There still is a God. He's a, probably a higher power running the universe, but uh, God by the name of Jesus or God by the name in terms of the way a church might define or the Bible might define, there's a lot of people that uh, self-identify that way, okay? And, and you know, typically in polls that they do, there's a certain amount of underreporting that goes on because who's going to admit it? You know, like, am I really going to admit that, that that's something? But uh, so if you think in terms of, uh, I think it was 43%, something like that was identifying as, uh, as atheist. You wonder if there's not a greater percentage simply because people maybe would not have been willing to admit that on a, uh, on a poll. So, Outreach to applications to a post-Christian culture. Number one, strive to meet people where they are. See, one of the things I think that is sometimes hard for us who grow up in the church, we grew up with all the stories, we grew up with all those things that we hold dear and also those things that are our assumptions, our, our starting points, is that sometimes there's a feeling that those people ought to what? meet us where we are. They need to come to us. They, they need to educate themselves. They need to do all these things. And that's not what we're going to be seeing in John. We're not going to, we certainly didn't see that in Jesus's ministry as well. And so if you're going to be the bridge to the world, the gospel, 
and you want to take the gospel to people, then you, the starting point is where they are. That's not the ending point, right? That's not how it's going to end, but that certainly is the starting point, and we see that with, uh, with John. The second thing is keep your faith core, C-O-R-E, core, strong through word and sacrament. What is your faith core? It is your identity as a beloved child of God. In other words, keep strong who you are. There's a lot of people in the world today that are very confused about who they are. In fact, how many times does it happen that you ask somebody who they are and they'll tell you what they do? And so that, that tells you a lot about, about how we identify our identity is on the basis of our work or our profession or, or what it is we do for a living, that sort of thing, or what we did do as, uh, 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 for a living. But that's not, the Bible doesn't approach it from that perspective. God approaches it from the perspective of who you are and maybe uh, more significantly, whose you are. And then number three, your core will be tested. This is a world that tests you. Okay. And I think one of the hardest tests there is, at least I know this is for me, is that when I'm trying to share a, a story, for example, or something that happened in the Bible or something like that as a reference point, okay, the response I get is, so what? And you know, when you grow up in the church, you never heard anybody say that, right? They may have thought it, but they never said it, right? Because the assumptions that we all had were the, the assumptions that we, we would say, well, of course, so what? Yeah, it's important for you. But that's not, uh, that's not necessarily the case anymore. Okay? Thoughts up to this point? Yeah. Two comments on, on, the, on point one there about uh, meeting them where they are. Uh -huh. We were at the mall one day talking to, talking to people about Jesus, and the guy said, why don't you just do this at your church? And I said, well, will you come? He goes, no. I said, well, that's why we got to talk to you here. <laughs> wow, what a great answer. But the other thing was related to this um, thing about you. Yeah. Is I think we've told you about our track ministry. So yes. we made a thing for, for New Year's a couple years ago. It has a... Instead of New Year's resolution, it has a 21-day challenge. Nice. So as we talk to people, then we'll ask, you know, have you read the Bible? Mm -hmm. It'll explain, you know, they're like, well, the Bible is so big, how am I going to get started? So we'll point to the Gospel of John mm -hmm. to this verse, say this was written so that you may believe, Ooh, and nice. we'll challenge them to read it. And there was an atheist that I had witnessed to for about six, seven years, and I challenged him to that, and he came to Christ. Wow. Wow. Are you all familiar with the track ministry that uh, you guys do? do you, I, I, you know, I didn't really even know that much about your ministry either until I walked in on you that one day at the, <laughs> you guys were stacking and, and packing and doing all those kinds of things. This, but I like this. It's very good. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Bring, let's see how many people do we have here? Because it'd be really great maybe for each, each one of us to have something like that. Yeah. If you'd be willing to do that. Awesome. Great. And I like the idea of 21 day challenge that in fact, that in many ways sort of captures the the uh, sort of the mind and the thinking of today, you know, don't tie me down to anything permanent, right? But the beauty of 21 days is what? If you do, if you do anything for 21 days, it's much more likely that it's going to become a, a, a habit or some, some sort of life, life kind of thing. Yeah. So very good. Thanks. Anything else? Yeah. Kathy. Kind of thinking about all the changes we've seen in the world in the last several years. Uh -huh. and what you spoke to me about strive to meet people where they are. I think times it's really hard for us who've been warmly privileged or not subject to, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian family. What yeah. about people who have not? So right. I think we really need to be aware of mm -hmm. how we deport ourselves and how we reach out to these people because yeah. they don't have a clue. I mean, yeah. I mean, how many of us grew up in, in this room in families that were not Christian? Right. Probably a handful of where there wasn't even a Bible, you know, you think that all the things that people could have in their, in their house, I mean, many of us grew up not just with a Bible, but the family Bible that has all the, you know, genealogies and all that stuff in there. And that was held uh, cl very closely as a, as a, not just an heirloom, but just something of uh, high significant value. Are y'all familiar with Lutheran Bible translators? Have you heard of them before? 
they had I, their headquarters at one time was over here in Grand Prairie. I don't know if that still is the case. But uh, anyway, in talking to the way that Lutheran Bible translators do that, it's very much consistent with uh, what we're talking about here, is that when they go over to a country where there is no written language, and that's kind of where they go, the idea is to be able to translate the Bible into the language of that culture of those people. But they don't just hit the ground and go, okay, here we are. We're, we're going to translate the, the Bible for you. They spend the time to get to know the culture. And in fact, to, to honor the culture and to respect the culture, even if there are some aspects of the culture that would be considered heathen and maybe a pagan in some sense. Now, that doesn't mean that they, they in, involve themselves in, in some of those rituals, but, but they don't just come right in and start to condemn it or to judge it in some way. They want to earn the trust of the people. And then the way to do that is by what? Is by meeting people where they are. And sometimes I think for us as Christians, in our zeal to save people, that the heart is in the right place in some sense. We want to save people. We want to, to bring salvation to them in some sense, is we're way too fast. And sometimes we don't let the Holy Spirit do the job that he, that he is really the one doing. And we sort of get in there and, and kind of muck it up a, a little bit too much. And then we end up creating walls to the gospel instead of open doors to the gospel. So there's something to be said for the time that it, it took. And I'm thinking, how long did you witness to, the, to the, your atheist friend? Seven years. Yeah. So it takes some perseverance as well, but, but um, showing an interest in somebody at that level. It's sometimes the Holy Spirit takes his time in doing these things, but you're still establishing that relationship with that person. Very good. All right. Yeah, Richard. Kind of two things uh, I thought about that first point. We need to think about what are their assumptions? You know, the big thing in teaching is understanding the person's background knowledge. Sure. If you're ever going to bring them to where you want them to be. Mm -hmm. And you really need to. And then as soon as I thought of that, I got to thinking, I bet you every one of us, if we thought hard enough, yeah. can recall something that we heard in a sermon or a Bible class that we absolutely reject. <coughs> Well, for sure in a sermon, but never in a Bible class, I'm sure. In other words, it was something that we really like. No, I don't agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing about it is, is it could be that's where we join that person mm -hmm. who currently challenges all of our assumptions. Mm -hmm. Because somebody said something, we'll say, that we perceive as mm -hmm. ignorant to that person. Right. And therefore, they reject everything. Yeah. I think sometimes the way that we react to other people's either struggle with something they hear in church or even rejecting or doubting, you know, I think the temptation for a lot of us is that we're horrified at that, right? And, and if you think, what is, when you're horrified by something, what, what does that look like on your face? What does that look like? Does it, is it like welcoming, you know, does that person want to come up and put their arm around you and, you know, be your best friend? No, most of us, if you're repulsed by something and it's an instinctual thing, I mean, most of us would not even be thinking about it, but it, but when something like that happens, there's a kind of a, like this, like this. And, you know, to be mindful of that, right. In terms of the, the, the effect that that might have on that unbeliever. I'm guessing that working with the atheist, there probably were a number of things that he probably said, or she said, was it he, he said, that would have like uh, caused the little hairs back here to go up in the back of your neck. And those, but yet you manage to stay engaged and to not be put off by it in such a way that would cause that person to feel like somehow you had rejected him just because he didn't believe the same things you did. So staying engaged is part of the deal. And, and for some people, that's a bit of a challenge uh, to, to, uh, to express that sort of interest. Yeah. Kind of two points going based off of what Richard said. Um, there is a man who I uh, watched some videos on YouTube. His name is Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis? Yes. Mm -hmm. Gave a TED Talk over this. 
He is a musician. He is an African American who spends his spare time befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, interesting. He goes to Klan rallies, he talks to them, he speaks with them, and over 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan have left because of his involvement. That's very interesting. He goes to them and simply says, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And they talk about where their beliefs and stuff come from. He talks to them, shares his beliefs, and challenges them. He meets them where they're at. And he, I mean, here's a black man who has a whole bunch of clan robes in his home. Because he keeps those because these show that people have left the clan because I met them where they're at. Wow. wow. And he is That's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah. 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 But I also think about, I mean, you know, my. Even when I'm witnessing the other Christians, like it makes my hair stand up when someone says baptism and communion are acts of obedience, not gifts of grace. When I talk to like atheists, for example, or something like that, or just people who are not Christian, for example, I always have to remember it's not me doing the work, it's the spirit. The scripture says love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast. And if I'm letting fear lead my witnessing, whatever doesn't perceive faith as sin, I'm doing it wrong. Because I think we all have a fear that people are going to hell or all this and that. But the spirit is peace. The spirit is love. We just love them where they're at. Sure. That's a great point, too, is that the starting point from our perspective is to love people. I think, again, sometimes we think that love means we should correct them. And there, maybe there's a time and place for that, but not until you've earned somebody's respect. And respect comes first, yes. Oh, yeah, like how long, well, like in marriage, how long did it take before you started to correct Richard? Was it like, oh, yeah, probably not long, yeah. Well, some people need it quicker, I suppose. All right, well, let's, let's get into the first part then of John 1, okay? Because that's where we're going here then as we, uh, as we get into the, uh, the text itself, all right? And what I want you to think about is if there ever was a case to be made for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is the preamble of John is it. Because you think, was John a super educated guy as far as we know? What was his training? What was his, uh, his profession? He was a fisherman. And you think, you know, fishermen were held pretty high in the, in the, in the society, but not the way the super intellectual would. And yet you look at the quality and the depth of his writing at this point, I'm thinking it could only be the Holy Spirit that would have guided this in a very powerful way. So he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not a thing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So he starts with this idea of the word. Now, when you look at the word word, is, is, the, is a word a thing or a person? Nope, a word is a thing. If you speak a word, you are speaking a thing. A word is a thing, right? That's what a word is. But what, what John does is he shifts it from a thing to a what here? Ah, to a person, right? So the little trick here. So in the beginning was the thing, which was the word, right? And the word, the thing was with God. And then what? The word was God. Now it becomes a person, all right? He, which is the word, right, the, the person, was in the beginning with, uh, with God. Now, the Greek word for word is logos, L-O-G-O-S. That's a word that should be familiar to us because that's a word that is used sometimes in, uh, in English as well. And so the Jewish understanding of the word logos was, had been shaped by all the stories in the Old Testament. So there was the power, number one, of the spoken word. That was huge in Hebrew, in Hebrew thinking. If you have ever read Hebrew, how many of you have read Hebrew? Nobody has, oh, one person has read, two people have read Hebrew, right? The Hebrew language, in order to be understood, <laughs> what'd you say? I thought you were referring to the book of Hebrew. No, 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 no. <laughs> 
Not the book of Hebrews, no. The Old Testament language of Hebrew. The way that you translate it and understand it is by reading it out loud. You can't just look at it and silently translate it. That's why it's always read, because the Hebrew language is itself a breathing language. And the definitions of words, the words themselves may look the similar to each other visually, but it's where the accent marks are and where the breathing marks are that tell you what the word itself actually means. So that's why I made D's in Hebrew in, in, in school, because I'm more of a visual learner and not, not so much of an audio learner. We had a professor who said, you cannot memorize Hebrew vocables. And what he meant by that was he handed out all these flashcards that we could use to memorize the, uh, the different vocabulary of Hebrew, right? Well, it was a hilarious because the only way that you can memorize it is by hearing yourself say it out loud. And so you have these uh, 30 or 40 seminarians walking around school re- reading out loud Hebrew words uh, to, uh, to hear what, the, what those words had to say. Remember a while back when we uh, talked about the Yahweh prayer? We talked about that. Remember that he, Yahweh is a, the name of God, meaning I am, right? But how do you say it? How do you say Yahweh? By breathing it, not by moving your lips. So we say Yahweh when I move my lips, but how would I say it if I was not moving my lips? <sighs> See, that's a breathing uh, uh, as opposed to a speaking, all right? So the Jewish, the Jewish understanding of the word logos, you see, was the power of the spoken word. In Genesis 1, what is, what is the predominant theme in terms of how God creates, creates the world? How does he do it? He speaks it into language, into existence. And God said, and God said, and God said. And they would have understood that. In Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out, how? From my mouth, right? It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then the second uh, appreciation that Hebrews would have had for, for the Logos is in the power of godly wisdom. So we think in terms of the book of Proverbs as an example of, uh, of godly wisdom. All right, now, the Greek coming at it from a totally different perspective would have understand, understood something way different than the Jewish uh, person would in terms of Logos. For the Greek the word logos had to do with the mind of God and the mind of God had to do with the reasoning capacity of God as the ultimate reasoner. And it makes perfect sense that Greece would look at it from that perspective because, because it was all about the purity of thought from their perspective. So when, when John says in the beginning was the logos, what is it that the Greek mind is going to think that that means? In the beginning was the mind of God. In the beginning was the reasoning of God. All right? You don't get much language in, uh, in Greek thought having to do with love, having to do with emotion, having to do with, with relationship. That's very much of a Jewish thought, but, uh, but the Greek thought didn't have much to do with that. So our ability to reason uh, resulted from the mind of God being in mankind. Yeah. Do you know how... Uh-oh, another uh, Scooby-Doo uh, reference here. <laughs> this, one's, this one's revelationary too, but different. Okay. In sign language. In sign language, okay. Do you know what man is in sign language? No. <laughs> now, is that men or women or is that man? This is man, okay. Dad. Yes. What's a woman? This? No. Oh, this is woman. So, so man. Wow. Wow. That is very interesting, too. Did you see that? Did you see what Almost she was referring to? revolutionary Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to remember that Scooby-Doo reference. I'll be, I'm going to be thinking about that. Oh, the movie, not the, like, normal cartoon? Yeah, okay. Whew. 
Thank goodness. Yeah. All right. So, so that, so do you see the distinction in terms of where the Greek would be coming at from again? Notice what, what, what John does is he intentionally picks a word like logos, which illustrates the difference in the way that they would approach it. And he now is going to take that word logos and he's going to pull them into the Christian gospel. That's what he's, uh, that's what he's seeking to do. All right. Just say with the last statement. I have no idea what I just said. What is it? <laughs> Sometimes I just say stuff and then I'm thinking, oh boy, oh boy. Well, okay, so here I'll make an attempt at it. Is John's use of the word logos was intentional. Okay? Because he knew that the Jewish mind would look at the word logos differently from the way that the Greek mind does. So what he's doing is he's, he's already forming the bridge. He's already saying that there's different ways to, to view this. And if we're going to pull Jesus into this, Jesus has more to do with, with love. He has more to do with relationship. But he is also... Jesus is the mind of God. When you look at Jesus, what do you learn about God? What do you learn about the way God thinks when you think of Jesus? God is interested in us. He is not disinterested in us. He recognizes our plight and he wants to do something about our plight. So that's the linkage that John is doing. See, John, John is very intentional about this. And his desire is to take the Greek mind who would say, oh, God is not interested in people. And we were just left on our own. He's redefining. He's re-shifting uh, their, their focus. And so one of the ways that it will see this all through the book of John, the gospel of John, is these, uh, co- these contrasts, light and dark life and death. We see that working all the way through there. And that's a very intentional part. So if you go to page five, we see some of those differences. What does light do? It brings order where darkness brings fear of what you can't see. When I was a little kid, we went to, we went on a family camping trip and it was the last one we ever went on (laughs) for lots of different reasons. But, but anyway, there was this big lake where we all were swimming. And I remember as a little kid being terrified of, that I couldn't see the bottom of the lake. And being an imaginative child, it was not that hard for me to imagine that there was some python or something that was <laughs> lurking at the bottom just waiting to, uh, to grab me. Uh, that's the kind of kid I was. All right. Secondly, light reveals. Darkness does what? All right, yeah. Third, light guides with clarity, whereas darkness blinds us, okay? And light overcomes darkness, and darkness is hostile to the light. So outreach applications, as we finish up here, trust in the power of God's Word. Trust in the power of God's Word. God's Word is stronger than your ability. Now, is it good to have ability? Yeah, that's a good thing, right? It's good to kind of think about what you would say, that sort of thing. But it's God's word that makes those things happen. Remember, number two, that people in darkness can be blinded if the light is shined too brightly. How long does it take your eyes to adjust? See, so there is an adjustment period in there. If we just come in gung-ho, guns blazing with the gospel of Jesus, we're likely to, uh, to blind people. So uh, incremental is, is probably better. And then when you live the light, some people in darkness may be drawn to you. Don't be surprised at that. When the light is leaking out of you, the confused world that we live in, people will find that they're attracted to that. What is it that... How is it that you're able, you know, those sort of things. Okay, good stuff for today. Let's, uh, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together now as we're uh, starting to work through the, the word, the logos that, uh, that is you. Remind us of that, Lord, that the word is not just simply words. The word is not simply a book. The word is not uh, stories only, but the word is your power And that word is in us and works through us as it uh, impacts other people. We're just not always aware of it, Lord. So keep us mindful of that. 
And in the meantime, strengthen us in our faith and strengthen us in our walk with you each and every day. Watch over us, dear Lord, those of us that are here today, as well as, well as those listening to the podcast as we go into Holy Week. May, we, may our celebration of Easter be, uh, be spectacular, but always mindful of the way uh, of everything that you did for us and the way that you uh, uh, carved out that path for us through Jesus. Watch over us until we're get together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.